Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hello there, Happy New Year, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And uh, if you're joining us after many, many episodes, welcome back. I've uh, been away for a few weeks. Um, If this is your first time, well, stick with us. We've got another year ahead of interesting stuff to talk about, think about, read, and just generally explore. So uh, I'm looking today at The Making of Global Capitalism by Leo Panitch and Sam Gindim. And hopefully, uh, as we go throughout the year and, you know, probably next and the one after that, um, we'll we'll look more and more at this book because it's really an extraordinary masterwork in explaining, particularly in the the post-war era, explaining the, the dominance of the United States of America uh, on the the shaping of uh, capitalism um, and the idea that capitalism isn't this sort of spontaneous naturally occurring phenomena it's a thing made by states and it's a thing um, regulated and enforced by states particularly uh, uh, dominant states like uh, the United States and before it Great Britain so here we are talking in the first chapter uh, about what um, the two authors refer to as the DNA of American capitalism. And the authors write, The role that the United States came to play in the making of global capitalism was not inevitable, but nor was it accidental. The American empire did not appear from nowhere, but comparing it with empires of the past, usually beginning with Rome's and ending with Britain's, tends to miss precisely what is distinctive about the American empire. When the new republic of the United States was founded, the term empire was quite often used to describe it. George Washington uh, was not the first, uh, was not the only founding father to do so when he spoke of it ambitiously as a rising empire, but proponents of American power gradually ceased to use the word. Unlike previous empires, the new American empire was primarily built without colonies. The early articulation of dynamic capitalist development at home with the Monroe Doctrine abroad involved building the continental territorial expansion of the Republic directly into the American state structure, while at the same time trying to contain and finally sweep out the colonies established in the Western Hemisphere by the European powers. This laid the foundation, despite the few colonies um, Uh, the US uh, took over from Spain at the beginning of the 20th century for eventual global reach of informal American empire. So this is something that has been said on on many occasions that what what you see with um, the ability of the United States to project its power far beyond its borders um, you can currently see uh, look look at the example of Ukraine at the moment or uh, Iraq um, 15 to 20 years ago, um, the ability of uh, uh, and you know countless other uh, examples going back to uh, for over 100 years, the ability of America to do this to influence the workings of markets and governments and to uh, win direct wars or proxy wars is evidence of, of American empire. And the uh, the limiting factor, or was the 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 kind of the argument that uh, against this, and it's a, a flawed argument, I would submit, is that uh, uh, America 
with, with the uh, a number of notable exceptions, uh, rarely has, has rarely established its own colonies, and like say, for, for example, the British Empire. Writing a few years before World War One, Karl Kautsky observed. The United States shows us our social future within capitalism. Insofar as this turned out to be true, it was because the way American capitalism and its worldwide appeal, the attractive power of the US models of production and culture, writes Kautsky, uh, emerged out of the particular matrix of its own social history. As Perry Anderson goes on to say, the unencumbered property rights and trammeled litigation the invention of the corporation that distinguished the US in the 19th century was part and parcel of the US's remarkable economic dynamism in the 20th, leading to what Karl Polanyi uh, most fe uh, feared, a juridical system dis um, uh, disembedding the market as far as possible from ties of custom, tradition or solidarity, whose very abstraction from them later proved American firms, like American films, exportable, reproductible across the world in ways that no other competitor could quite match. This prediction by Polanyi, um, I guess it, it helps us to to navigate the uh, the awesome kind of uh, all conquering power of American capital in the twentieth century and the. Uh, ability of um, America from the the mass production of the Ford Model T all the way to um, the creation of things like Amazon to um, harness market power and sort of strip it away from um, local, regional or national uh, roots uh, and then recreate it in almost a kind of like a viral way in uh, territories which are often often very alien to to the USA uh, and, and do it successfully um, the idea that there are kind of uh, McDonald's in places that um, have no kind of uh, no history no historical social cultural connection to uh, American fast food is now this is it is now almost kind of um, uh, meaningless a meaningless thing to to observe and that shows how kind of omnipresent um, uh, not just American culture but American capital has become uh, American capital simply mines aspects of American culture uh, and then creates them as kind of disposable marketable assets and you can see this if you walk past a, a, a Disney store or something like, like that. The author's right. Combined here were on the one hand the invention in the US of the modern corporate form, scientific management of the labour process and assembly line mass production and on the other Hollywood style narrative and visual schemas stripped of their most abstract, thereby not only appealing to the aggregating successive waves of immigrants, but ensuring that US consumption patterns were widely emulated abroad. But the role of the state in this could not be ignored. And this is the key bit. The steady transformation of, the inter of uh, international merchant law and arbitration in conformity with US standards 
is witness to the process. So whether or not uh, American capital and mass culture came to dominate the 20th century is sort of the, the, the secondary issue. It's the how. And the, no, the story that uh, markets are these kind of uh, unicorn-like like kind of conceptions that simply appear um, uh, out of nowhere and um, act in ways that are slightly beyond the, the conception of the normal mortal. Well, this, this is nonsense, really. Markets are the product of uh, the states that create them. Um, and, and markets are shaped in particular ways. Um, politics is an, an always something that kind of is the precursor to, uh, to markets and not the other way around. Um, in order for um, there to be a uh, the success of um, American um, capital and other capitalisms as well, but predominantly American capital, the post-war rules of uh, trade and of uh, uh, debt uh, and the uh, the laws that allowed a certain kind of uh, modern extraterritoriality almost has allowed uh, for US investors uh, and investors from other countries but again this was dominated by American investors to operate in uh, uh, foreign countries without fear of them being um, expropriated or taxed or, or, or whatever these these are the th these laws um which were the product of the kind of the first generation of post-war neoliberals. Uh, if you want a really good book on that, read Globalists by Quinn Slobodian, which I'll be hopefully talking to you from um, pretty soon. Uh, these, the, these frameworks were created uh, after the Second World War um, in primarily uh, by the um, international cha the neoliberals within the International Chamber of Commerce um, who shaped um, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs GATT which they hoped would be a, a, a tool that would allow um, their, their conception of markets to, uh, to dominate the world the, there was this sort of story that um, neoliberals existed on the fringes of academic and economic discourse uh, in 1945 and really didn't get anywhere till um, uh, the crises of the 1970s and it's not exactly true they certainly had a, a huge amount of sway when it came to building the architecture of global capital which is um what began the project that began in 1945 and was uh, fundamentally altered when Nixon took America off the gold standard in 1971. Um, the the neoliberals, um, the the likes of Friedrich von Hayek, um, that were determined to, that um, the system they created would provide a kind of what they thought of as a corrective to um, countries that bowed to trade unions or minority groups wanting to have 
uh, higher higher taxation and social welfare spending and redistribution of wealth in order to balance out historic injustices uh, in um, higher and this this spending would distort the finely tuned signals of the market um, it would uh, reward um, it would, uh, re- reward uh, indolence and lead to uh, increased levels of um, uh, redistribution of wealth and would uh, have the effect of uh, increasing inflation which obviously uh, neoliberals viewed as being uh, the worst of all worlds um, and so so they had a, a profound influence right from the beginning of, of the post-war era an appreciation of how centrally US capitalism figures writes the, write the authors um, in the general development of capitalism in the hundred years before World War Two, is key to understanding what impelled the American state to assume its new imperial role. But we also need to understand what made it capable of conjugating, to Boris Anderson's term, its particular power with the general task of coordination of, in the making of global capitalism. Anderson's view is that the US constitutional structures lack the carrying power of its economic and cultural ones, being more than the 18th century arrangements. While Michael Hart and Antonio Negri, in sharp contrast, see the US constitution as having conferred a new kind of network power, well adapted to the creation of and management of globalization. While this is an important insight, it underplays not only the considerable power of the US Constitution uh, that that it gave um, the federal state to police uh, the regime against insurrection, to make war, to to promote trade, and establish to expand the Union territorially, but also the room it provided for the federal state to superintend the development of an informal empire. Abundant land and resources, uh, access to large foreign pools of British capital and European labour, privileged capitalist development, uh, privileged capitalist development in the U.S. But it is the way in which these came to be combined through the distinctive class relations, first in the independent commodity-producing farm economy, and then in the modern corporate economy, that lies at the roots of the uniquely dynamic nature of American capitalist development. Pivotal to this was the American state. Though often characterised as peculiarly weak or laissez-faire, its activism sustained the, contradi- the, the, the conditions for the success of US capitalism and imprinted those successes with its own distinctive characteristics. Although he could not have imagined what this would actually look like two centuries later, it thereby fulfilled Thomas Jefferson's boast that no constitution was ever before as well calculated for the extensive empire and self-government. So the the thesis in this book is that the creation of American capital and the ability of um, American capital to sustain empire and also the role of uh, the uh, U.S., state itself in facilitating empire a um, mainly a, a US empire but facilitating the empire of capital itself 
was hardwired into the constitution this um, document which is the the product of uh, the enlightenment um, and the uh, the the uh, 17th and 18th centuries so the the world in which we live which is is still to a greater extent dominated by US power dominated by um, US capital and the interest of US capital is um, born of specific events in, in the late 18th century but how do we explain the dynamism which the American economy um, evidently uh, exhibits the authors write a key characteristic of American economic development was the use of leading-edge technologies to deepen domestic and domestic capital accumulation through intensive growth, while an unprecedented extensive growth was facilitated by the state's expansion of territory within sovereign control, from Ohio to Texas to California to Oregon. So the ability to hoover up large amounts of territory from and dispossess Native Americans and uh, get access to all these in inverted commas free resources is part of the answer the other is the um the ability or the the inclination to uh, endless in innovation basically american capitalists in the 19th century and the 20th century understood better than probably anybody that the way that they would become ever richer was to endlessly innovate. And I think probably the decline of British imperial capital was uh, the the kind of the, the Britain's Britain's lo ability to lose sight of of this one fundamental truth. Uh, everything from about 1870 onwards has been a story of declinism and it, it still is and um, the decision to shift the the focus of investment in Britain from industrial to financial capital to make short-term gains uh, in the city of London uh, as opposed to uh, investing for the long term in uh, Sheffield, Birmingham and Manchester uh, goes a long way to explain the state of the country right now. The small-scale farming which engaged most white citizens as independent commodity producers, this is referring to America again, um, in competitive commercial agriculture spawned a process of agro-industrialization, first in the North Atlantic states and then, and especially in the new Midwestern states. Once the farmers were let loose on a fertile plain, this system of agriculture quickly generated huge surpluses for disposal elsewhere, revolutionised production methods across the wide range of agro-processing industries, and built, immense urban, uh, built an immense urban system to support and sustain the bare bones of production. Moreover, as early as the 1850s, workers in the new cities and towns became significantly significant mass consumers of standardised goods, adding another key element in the distinctive socio-economic matrix of American development, a relatively high-wage proletariat. The fact that by mid-century wages in the US were more than double those in Britain contributed strongly to pulling in vast pools of labour that were simultaneously being pushed out 
by unemployment in Europe. So there's a reason why uh, America is uh, so uh, such a, a, a source of, of riches for white European settlers in the 19th century. How is it possible that Amer that wages and therefore living standards for the most part are twice that of Europe? Well, it's because huge amounts of land have been acquired through dispossessing their native inhabitants. And um, the dynamism that uh, America, the, the American uh, economy um, possessed was kick-started by this one fundamental and inescapable and brutal fact much as the wealth of Great Britain and Britain's Industrial Revolution came from the exploitation and uh, suffering of uh, slaves in the West Indies, uh, the surplus labour value accumulated from their toil um, went into the wealth of England and funded the Industrial Revolution. The author's right. In fact, an industrial working class had begun to emerge in the US by the time uh, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote Democracy in America, and he already discerned tensions emerging between it and the new oligarchy of factory owners. The shortage and mobility of skilled labour was a key factor a key factor here, reinforced by the bargaining power that an abundance of land and the possibility of starting a family farm gave workers in the labour market, at least initially. By placing limits on the degree of exploitation employers could impose, in spite of the high rate of immigration of new workers, this spurred more capital-intensive production. It also provided levels of income that allowed some craftsmen to start their own factories and forced factory owners to promote the development of labour-saving innovations in machine technology and factory organisation. Two other factors reinforced this trend. One was the system of protective tariffs, which in spite of northern merchant and southern planter opposition, was in place from the 1820s. Another was the initiation of uh, and coordination by the federal government, acting through the War Department's federal armoury of new production methods using interchangeable parts, precision gauges, specialist machines operated by relatively unskilled labour and management control information systems, the American system of manufacturing, so much admired in Europe by the middle of the 19th century. Um, which, again, presents us with all sorts of interesting thoughts about the, the role of the state in the development of mass production and the factory system and um, enterprise in general. In recent years, the economist uh, Mariana Mazzucato has made uh, the point that uh, if you look, take the example of the, the iPhone, the iPhone is a product of, um, is, is created almost exclusively by state research, um, by government-backed research, uh, mainly in the US, but some in other parts of the world. Every component was, was created um, by uh, state funding and subsidies and um, the uh, military-industrial complex, which is essentially um, 
a, a huge uh, sort of um, state-funded um, uh, enterprise created um, everything that, uh, that that goes into the smartphone and without the state being able to take the sorts of risks that capitalists can't or won't, uh, you wouldn't have um, the internet or uh, a whole bunch of other things. Um, and, and this is, was, this, it appears to be as true all the way back in the, the mid-19th century as it is now. Um, and a, a lot of the in America, a lot of the kind of the the processes needed for the development of American um, mass production towards the end of the nineteenth century and into the twentieth uh, is the product of um, the innovations pioneered by the U.S. Uh, Department of War, obviously to quickly make large numbers of things like rifles or cannonballs or uh, artillery shells or, or what have you. Anyway, so the, the purpose of this podcast is to kind of lay out some ideas that we're going to pursue throughout the year um, about um, particularly with the, the nature of capitalism, uh, about what it's kind of... Um, uh, what's its sort of kind of originating ideas are? I mean, there is a whole bunch of other stuff to say on the subject, and the, the next book I want to introduce, and perhaps I will do next week, will be The Anxious Triumph by uh, Donald Sassoon. But here, looking at it from uh, Panishing Indian's perspective, seeing um, capitalism in the 20th century as the product of um, American empire and in, inseparable from American empire. Um, it's, a, it's important to, to kind of explore the origins of both 19th century American capital and 19th century American empire, which we shall, shall move on to. Anyway, I hope you found this useful today. Um, there's lots of new content for students at the, the Explaining History website, explaininghistory.org. I am currently putting out um, various information uh, pages for students of the Russian Revolution. So go check it out. Um, and if you can share it, that's great. It's all free of charge and um, it'll be kind of handy when the exams come around. So check it out, explaininghistory.org. Um, and uh, you can also find us uh, at the Explaining History uh, podcast uh, Facebook group on, uh, on Facebook of all places. Thanks very much and I'll catch you next time. All the best. Bye-bye.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.